Well, good morning again. Great to see you here, church family. And if you are a visitor here with us today, we're grateful to have you here. And if you're new to church in general, thank you for choosing to, to come here today. Um, prayed for you this morning, and I pray that God speaks and encourages you. What we do every Sunday morning as we gather together is we open up God's Word and we allow it to change us and to speak to us. And so we're going to do that today. We're going to be in that series you just saw, Turning the World Upside Down in 1 Thessalonians. So if you have a copy of God's Word, I hope you do, go ahead and make your way to chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians. And I would say if you don't have a Bible, we have some in our Welcome Center out here. We'd love to give you one as a gift. You can just take it for free on your way out, and we'd love to just give you that as a gift today. So we're just grateful that you're here with us. And it's a good time to be here because this is the second week of this series. So we just started it last week, and I would just encourage you, if you missed out on last week, go check out iTunes, find us on there, listen to it. It's going to give you the, the context and the setting of everything we're going to walk through as we continue to walk through this book of 1 Thessalonians. And so tune in on, online on our website or on Apple Podcasts. Love to have you guys watch that. But just to catch everybody up, get us all on the same page, First Thessalonians is an extremely practical book. We're going to see that in the weeks ahead. It talks about how we work, how we live life, how we interact with other people, how we deal with struggles and failures. It's going to be an extremely, extremely practical book for you and I as we walk through and the reason why is because when Paul wrote this letter uh, to the Thessalonians, which is the city he went to, Thessalonica, he shares the gospel with them. They believe in that gospel, and God changes their lives in such a way that they start this church up, and their faith echoes into all these different cities around Greece. And so we'll see that just their faithfulness in their city made their faith echo, and the gospel go to all these other places. And so when Paul writes this letter of 1 Thessalonians... They weren't real creative, right? They just came up with it. First Thessalonians, Thessalonica is where the church was lit, written. So he gives them this letter, and he just encourages them. Just encourages them, because they're doing so much right. And I want to, I want to follow Paul's example today and just encourage you guys as a church at West Cabarrus. It's amazing to see what God has been doing in you and through you as a church. And so you guys know that over the, the summer, uh, for 14 weeks, we had a prayer goal for our REACH Summer Giving Challenge, where we wanted to, to reach deep so the gospel could go far, that the gospel could go from neighborhoods to nations. And we set a goal before us as a church that we would be consistent and faithful to give through the summer months, and we were hoping and praying that God would allow us to reach $250,000. And that's a lot of money. But I just want to celebrate this morning that you, because of your faithfulness and your diligence, we met that goal. And so just praise God this morning that over those... 14 weeks. And what's amazing is we didn't just meet our goal. Because of your generosity, we exceeded our goal by $30,000. And so praise God for that. And so church family, what I want to do is I just want to show you a quick video highlighting of what we were able to do for our neighborhoods and the nations because of your generosity. So watch this video real quick.
uses the small, the weak, the simple, the ones that are struggling. That's what we're called to do, to obey God and to share. And God is the one that's working and doing the saving. And I love that reminder. And so I challenge each of us to remember that God is working in our friends in the Gambia. God is working in our friends and neighbors here in Concord, North Carolina. And God is working in our families. Amen, amen. It's good. Let me just invite you to continue to be generous to the Lord as we continue as a church to run forward to making more and better disciples from neighborhoods to nations. So thank you for that. All right, 1 Thessalonians, we'll start in verse 1 and we'll go through verse 7. And this is what the word of the Lord says to us this morning. It says, Paul and Sylvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We talked about how important that is last week. Grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly remembering you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, your labor of love, and your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. When we talked last week, those three things God will use to turn the world upside down. Now verse 4. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your, your grace to us. God, you have provided for us the way of salvation. You've provided for us hope that goes beyond circumstances. God, you've provided for us everything we need to take the gospel to the neighborhoods and the nations. So Lord, we thank you for that. And Lord, we ask as we open your word this morning that you would just give us understanding. Help us to understand your truth. Help us to understand more of who you are and your desire for our lives. And now let me just give you a moment of silence to pray and ask God to speak to you this morning. Pray and ask him to speak now. And now pray for me that in the few minutes we have together that I would serve you well by pointing you to the Lord. Pray for me now. Lord, every, every week we need you. Every waking minute we need you. And so, Lord, we come to you now uh, with open hands asking you to speak and to move. God, would you impact our lives in this moment that would echo for all of eternity. For your namesake, we pray. Amen. Amen. 
All right, First Thessalonians, like I said, is an extremely practical book. But before we get into how we live out our faith, we need to understand how we come to faith in Jesus Christ. And so there's two really important questions I want us to unpack today. And, and, and the first one is this, how to become a Christian? How to become a Christian? And the second one I want us to un- unpack is, what is a Christian to become? So how to become a Christian and then what a Christian is to become. Now, I know some of you maybe are here because a, a friend invited you and you're like, I don't believe in this whole Christianity thing. Or maybe you're tuning in online just because you've had a question, but you're like, man, I just don't believe this or I don't agree with this. And you're going to tell me how to become a Christian. I just kind of reject the whole Christianity thing. Let me just pause for a second and talk to you because I would just say there's people that I have talked to and they're like, man, I don't want anything to do with Christianity. I don't want anything to do with Christ. And I'm like, what do you mean by that? Like, why, why do you not want anything to do with Christianity? And they've said things like, well, Christianity, it's all about these, these moral rules. We just have to do this list and check all these things off. And if I can check all the boxes of all the morality, then I'm a Christian. That's what Christianity is. Or they'll say things like, I've seen Christians and they're nothing but a bunch of hypocrites because they can't live out this legalistic list of all the moral things. And so the church is just filled with hypocrites. And let me just say that if that's you today, first of all, the gospel is not do these things and you're saved. That's not what Christianity is. And if you're offended and upset because you've seen hypocrites within the church and you've seen legalists within the church, then you just need to hear today, if you don't like those people, neither do Christ, okay? He came down the hardest on those who were legalists and those who were hypocrites. And so if you're going to reject Christianity, listen today to know what it is that you're rejecting, what it is you're saying, I don't agree with or I don't believe in. Because if you're saying, I regret, I re- reject those things of morality and legalism, then we're on the same team. There's something much deeper that the gospel does in our hearts and our lives that, yes, it shapes the way we live, but not in order for us to be saved, but because we're saved by his grace. And so listen to the truth of God's word today on how we become a Christian. How we become a Christian. Look in verse 5 of the text that we read. This is telling us where it starts. This is how we become a Christian. It says in verse 5, because the gospel came to you, not only in word. We find in this passage that the first step of being a Christian is hearing the gospel. The gospel came to the people in Thessalonica, and they had to decide what they were going to do with it. They couldn't ignore it. Like, this is too big of a message to ignore, that a man said that he came from heaven to earth to die on the cross for our sins and to save us for all of eternity. You can't overlook that. You can't gloss that. You either receive it or you reject it. And that's what's before the people here in Thessalonica. The message has come to them. The gospel has come to them. Will they receive that message and believe it? Or will they turn away and reject it? Well, what's that gospel message, that gospel that came to them? Well, it says it came not only in word. And that's important because it means that the gospel is a word. It, it, it's not less than a word. It has to be a word. It came not only in word. But we need to understand that the gospel is words. It's sentences. It's ideas. It's beliefs that we hold to. This is what the gospel is. It's words, right? Sentences, affirmations, assertions. There's a man in church history, uh, Francis of Assisi, said this, preach the gospel, and when it is necessary, use words. Some of y'all may have heard that, right? Preach the gospel, and when it's necessary, use words. 
That sounds great, doesn't it? It sounds great. But the gospel is a word. We, we need to show the gospel that we believe with how we live, but we have to have our mouths speak that gospel as well. To say preach the gospel and when necessary use words would be like me saying be healthy and when necessary eat food. Like what? If I'm not eating food, then there's no way I'm healthy, right? If you're not speaking the gospel with your mouth, with words, then you're never going to hear the gospel and believe the gospel. So we speak it, but we also live it out. The gospel is a message. Okay, well, what is that message? It's a word. What, what is it? Well, we talked about it last week. In Acts 17, it talks about how Paul came into the city and even tells us exactly what he said to these people. He went in and he reasoned with them and talked to them and said, you know what? This is the gospel. That Jesus, the Messiah, would come from heaven to earth and would suffer. He had to. It says it was necessary for him to suffer, according to Acts 17. Why was it necessary? Because of our sin and our guilt and our shame. It deserved punishment. We did all of these injustices and we were due justice. You guys remember talking about this last week? And Paul says, this is the gospel, that you know that Christ came and stood in your place and in my place. But he didn't just die for our sins. He didn't just become a curse in our place. Paul also said in Acts 17, he rose from the grave. He didn't just take the wages of our sin, which was death, but he defeated death. This is the gospel. This is what Paul is preaching. This is the message. These are the words that he spoke Jesus came and stood in our place for our sins, defeating sin and then defeating death. Now, if this is new news to you, or maybe you've heard it for a while, the question you might be asking is like, why would God do that? Why would the innocent one who did nothing wrong, why in the world would he die in my place? Why? He didn't do anything wrong. He wasn't a criminal. He wasn't guilty. I was. Why would he die in my place? Well, it tells us in verse 4. It says, For we know, brothers, loved by God. Why did Jesus do this? Because he loved you. Because he loved me. One of the most familiar verses in the Bible, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son. God the Father sent God the Son, Jesus Christ, to die in our place because he loved us, that we would not perish but have everlasting life. This is the gospel. This is the good news. These are the words that came to the people in Thessalonica. These are the words that are coming to you today, that you would hear this goodness that Christ stood in your place, that you could be forgiven and changed forever. And he didn't just do this because he loved me. Because you might say, well, why did God love me? Why did he love me in this way? Because he chose to. God loves you and he loves me because he chose to. That's what it says in verse 4. For we know, brothers, beloved by God, that he has chosen you. He's chosen you. Now, there's a lot of theological tension in churches about what this means that God has chosen us, but it's clearly in the Bible, and you see it in multiple places in the Bible. You look back at Abraham. Abraham in the Old Testament, this is a man who was running from God. He was worshiping idols. 
There were no Christians in his family, and God chose him for a purpose and said, I'm actually going to bless the nations through you, Abraham. And he does it. And then we come here, even the person who's writing this, Paul, a man who was murdering Christians, he got his money, he got his paycheck from going to city and city and locking up Christians and martyring them. That's what he got paid for. And God changes him. He chose him for a purpose that he would start these churches and use these churches for the glory of his name. We see in the book of Acts, Lydia, God looks at this influential, wealthy woman, and he's like, God, I want to, God says to Lydia, I'm going to use you. I've chosen you for a specific purpose, to support the church and to help the church grow and thrive. So does God choose us? Yes. Does he choose to love us? Absolutely. Well, does that mean I don't have any responsibility? Does God's choosing neglect human responsibility? No, not at all. John Calvin said it like this. He said, we must not suppose that there's a violent compulsion as if God is dragging me against my will, but it is a wonderful and inconceivable manner that he regulated all the movements of men so that they still have the exercise of their will. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, speaking of how God controls everything and yet man has responsibility in our activities. He said, these are two lines that are so nearly parallel that the human mind which pursues them will never discover where they converge. But they do converge. They will meet someday in eternity, close to the throne of God, where all truth does spring. So does God rule everything? Yes. Do we still make choices? Yes. How do those two things fit together? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. God doesn't tell us. In his word, he doesn't tell us. But this much I do know. This is meant to be in the Bible to encourage us, to give us comfort, not conflict. God put this to comfort our hearts. And sadly, what a lot of people in the church have done is they take out their spiritual daggers and instead of delighting in this truth, they stab each other in the back with it. God has not put this in his word to create tension and conflict, but comfort to you and I. So be comforted today that God loves you and he chose to love you. Be encouraged by that truth. It's the truth of the gospel. But the gospel isn't just the checklist of thoughts that you know and you can agree with and say, yes, I agree with that one, check. I agree with that one, check. I know those words, check. I, I agree with that. It tells us here in this passage that it came not only in word, verse 5 says, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. The gospel comes with power. It changes us. We can't just say, yeah, I know all these boxes to check, and I know all these facts, I know all these theological truths. No, it comes into our lives, and it reshapes us. It forms us. It turns our world upside down personally, and then as we live it out, it will turn the literal world upside down. That's what it does. It comes with power. It comes with power. Paul, who, who wrote this, who preached this, was not a great speaker. He was not a great order. He wasn't. You might read this and be like, man, he, he definitely was. No, he tells us in 2 Corinthians, he's like, I wasn't great at speaking. People actually made fun of me because of the way I looked and the way I spoke. But yet God, in his grace and mercy, through the power of the gospel, saved and rescued people. And you might think, you've been in church a little while, like, oh, that's a humble brag for Paul. Like, he's just, it's just a humble brag. No. Acts chapter 20, 
Paul is preaching. People are falling asleep. One guy is sitting on a windowsill, and he didn't just fall asleep like laying to the side. Like falls asleep, falls out of the window, right? Like Paul is not a great speaker in this moment. So where is the power? Where is the change? It's in the Holy Spirit moving through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's where the power is. And church, we have to grasp this truth. We have to grasp this truth for a number of reasons. One, we will never share the gospel well if we're counting on ourselves to share it. If we think it's all about us and we've got to make sure we say everything right and gosh, we can't say anything wrong, oh, I've got to do everything right, then we're missing the truth that the gospel comes with power through God's spirit, not our spirit. God is the one that changes. I can't change you. I can't. I can sit up here and preach for 15 hours straight and I still cannot change your heart. I can't. Only God can do that. Only God can do that. It's by his power and his might. And so if we trust in God and know he's the one that has the power, then it allows us to share freely. But at the same time, when we know the gospel comes with power, it allows us to know that God can change anyone. Remember, God changed you if you're a believer. Do not forget that. God's gospel has saving power. God's gospel has the power to change a persecutor into a pastor. That's what happened for Paul. He's murdering Christians, and then he starts sharing the message of the good news. What? That's the power of the gospel of Christ. The power of the gospel can take enemies and make them friends. Some of you may have heard of this book, but he's my brother. It's the name of the book. This African-American uh, man who's a believer, John Perkins, co-authored it with Thomas Terrence. And it's amazing because John Perkins was abused in a number of ways in the past because of his African-American background. And Thomas used to be a former KKK member. And somehow, through the power of the gospel, both of these guys believe in Jesus, and then they co-write this book together, we're brothers. And so they're no longer enemies. Now they're looking at each other and they're like, you're my brother. You see, the gospel has the power to take a racist and to make them righteous. That's what the gospel does. The gospel has the power to take somebody who's so filled with pride and stuck in homosexuality and change them into a pastor's wife. Rosaria Butterfield, if you don't know that name, you need to look her up. Amazing. She wrote for the New York Times for years, is an amazing writer. And God convicted her of the pride that she had in her heart through the gospel. And she repents of that and turns, and now she is a pastor's wife writing about the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to change even those that are so far from God. And this is the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel can take a greedy person and turn them into a generous person. It can take an apathetic person and turn them into a passionate person. The gospel of Jesus Christ can take a selfish person and turn them into a selfless person. The power of the gospel can take somebody who's been in church for a lifetime and thinks they know everything to a person who's a true follower and believer in Jesus Christ. That's the power of the gospel. That's how the gospel comes, not just with word, but in power. But it also comes in full conviction, verse 5 says. Maybe you underline each of those three in verse 5. The gospel came to you not only in word, but in power, and then at the very end with full conviction. Or full assurance, your Bible might say. What that means is we can't take a piece of the gospel and say we want this, but not that. We can't open up the Bible and say I like this part of it, but I don't like this part of it, so I'm going to agree with this, but not this. Like, no, you get it all. It's a full conviction, a full belief that this is true. 
I'm going to follow it. I'm going to obey it. If he's the Lord of all creation, if he's the Lord over death, then he most certainly is the Lord of my life. And so what he says, I'm going to, I'm going to obey. And I would just say, if, you, if you're sitting here and you're like, man, you look and you're thinking, I disagree with these things. And what I really want, you might not use these words, but what you really want is an echo chamber where you just speak your beliefs and then it comes right back at you. That's not what you're going to find with God. And if you're looking for a God like that, then what you're honestly looking for is yourself to be God. We worship a God that's going to disagree with us many a times. But we submit to him because we know that he loves us and he is gracious and merciful and kind and all-knowing. And so we trust in him. You see, this is the gospel. We don't get to pick and choose what we want. We take it with full conviction. A lot of times I see people that look at the gospel like this picture right here where it's a buffet. We're sitting here like, I want this piece of it, and I want this, like, I really want to keep these friends in this way, but I want to also have this little piece of Jesus over here. And so we just look at the gospel like a buffet line. It's not a buffet line. The gospel is to be believed with full conviction. We don't pick and choose what we want. It's all or nothing. That's what the gospel is. It's all or nothing. So believe that. This is how you become a Christian. You hear the gospel, let it move in your heart with power, and you believe it with full conviction. This is what it means to follow Jesus and to be a Christian. Charles Spurgeon, who lived back in the 1800s, mentioned one of his quotes earlier, but he's one of the greatest preachers who ever lived. And years, uh, years later, he wrote about his conversion story, about how he came to know Jesus Christ. And what we find in his conversion story is, Exactly what Paul's saying happens with the gospel here in Thessalonica. And so Spurgeon, as he writes about his conversion story, this is what he says. I'm going to read it to you. But he says, one Sunday morning I was trying to go to a certain place of worship. But when I could go no further, because there was a snowstorm, I turned down the side street and came to a little primitive Methodist chapel that maybe had 12 or 15 people in it. He said, the pastor didn't come that morning He was snowed in, I suppose, so at last a thin-looking man, most likely a shoemaker or a tailor, walked into the pulpit to preach. And he stuck to his text because he had little else to say. And the text was this, look unto me and be saved, from Isaiah 45. Spurgeon wrote, he didn't pronounce all the words right, but it didn't matter. As he began to speak, he said, my dear friends, This is a simple text indeed. Look. Now looking don't take a great deal of pain. It ain't lifting a foot or finger. It's just look. Man don't need to go to college to take a look. You you can be the biggest fool and have a look. Man don't need to be worth $1,000 a year to take a look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. But this text says, look unto me. Many of you are looking to yourselves. There's no use looking there. You will never find your comfort in yourself. Jesus says, look unto me. The good man followed up his text by saying this, look unto me, I'm sweating drops of blood. Look unto me, I'm hanging on the cross. Look unto me, I'm dead and I'm buried. Look unto me, I rise again. Look unto me, I ascend to heaven. Look unto me, I'm sitting at the right 
hand of the Father. Oh, poor sinner, would you look unto me? He said he managed to string words together for about 10 minutes until he was the end of his tether. And then he looked at me, and with so few people present in the audience, he knew me to be a stranger. And then he looked at me as if he knew my heart, and he said, young man, you look miserable. Miserable. And I did, but I wasn't accustomed to having marks like that made to me from the pulpit about my personal appearance. But it struck right home, and he continued to say, and you will always be miserable. Miserable in life, miserable in death, if you do not obey my text. Obey it now, and you will be saved. And lifting up his hand, he shouted like only a good primitive Methodist can do, young man, look to Jesus. Look, look, look. Spurgeon wrote, at once I saw the way of salvation. I know not what else he said, didn't much matter. I was possessed with that one thought, and the clouds were gone, and the darkness rolled away. In that moment, I saw the sun. What happened in Spurgeon's life is what's happened in some of your lives in this room or watching online, but not all of us. See, when the gospel comes to us, it comes to us in word, but it comes to us with the power of the Spirit. And it changes us with a deep, full conviction. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. So what are you going to do with that? What are you going to do with that? There's three options. The irreligious person will say, I just don't believe it. I reject it. Let's move on. You can choose that option. You can. I beg of you not to. The religious person will say, yeah, I hear those truths, I hear what you're saying, I know all of those words, that's great. And you know the truths, you can speak them back, but you don't believe, and it hasn't come to you with full power. So you're a religious person, but you're not a Christian. Or you can be a Christian, and you can hear these truths, believe these truths, and allow them to change your world, to turn your world upside down. That's what's before us this morning. That's what he invites us to do. And some of you maybe have heard the gospel a thousand times, and for some reason there's a difficulty or conflict in your life, and you've heard the truth for maybe the first, seemingly first time today, and this conflict and this truth have just collided in your life, and it's different. You're like, I haven't heard it like that before. And that's not because of anything I've said. That's because God is working in your heart and your mind. And if God is doing that, then respond to that. You can pray right now, God, would you save me? I believe these things. It's coming to me with power and truth. Would you save me? God will change your life right now. He will change your life for all of eternity. This is the goodness and the grace of our God because he loves us. So this is what it means to become a Christian. Second thing is, what is a Christian to become? What is a Christian to become? That's what we see in the second half of this text. You see, we would use churchy words like salvation, God saves us, and then he sanctifies us, which means that God is refining us. We don't get saved and then everything in our life is perfect the way it should be. No, God is refining us over time and making us look more like him over time. So don't wait to clean yourself up to come to God. God refines us and changes us after he saved us. And that's what we find in this text in verse 6. Verses four and five are all about, this is what the gospel was. This is how it came. Now look what happened. 
Now they believed the gospel, it says in verse 6, they became imitators of us and of the Lord. You see, who they admired changed. It's one of the first things. They start looking at Paul and how he lived his life, and they're like, man, we want to live like that. They looked at Jesus and what they had heard about Jesus, and they're like, no, 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 that's our king. That's the one we want to live like. That's the one we want to model our lives after. You see, it's been said that you can tell the quality of a person by their company, by the company they keep, right? You can tell the quality of a person by the company they keep, but I want to suggest there's a better measurement of human character. I tell you the quality of a person is made by who they admire. Who do you admire? Who are your heroes that you want to model your life after and shape your life after? And the reason why I say that's a better measurement is because you can't always choose the company you keep. You can't. Some of you are in families that you're like, man, my family's in shambles. Like, if it wasn't my brother, I would never hang out with them, right? We just have that, that tension there. You didn't get to choose your coworkers, most likely, but they're your company, right? They're your people around you. You didn't get to choose your neighbors. And so when you look at your life, it might be filled with people you're like, this is not my company. But it's different with who you admire. No one else picks that for you. No one. You choose who you admire. You choose who you want to emulate and imitate. No one else can choose that for you. You choose that. And what happens when God saves us is our perspective of who we admire greatly changes. We look at it and we stop thinking, man, I wish I had a YouTube channel like that person has and had that many people following them on Instagram like they have. Or I wish that I was able to sing like they sing or play sports like they play sports. It changes us from thinking, I wish I had a house or a job like they have, or I wish I had the physically fit body that they have. And God starts to change our hearts and our desires, and instead we start saying things like, man, I wish I had a faith like theirs. Because somehow their faith endures incredibly hard seasons of life. Man, I wish I had a faith like theirs. We look and we think, man, I wish I could pray like that person prays. They seem to, to think and know the, the Word of God so well that it's guiding their prayers. I, I wish I could pray like they pray. Or, man, that person is so generous with their time and with their words and with their finances. I wish I could be as generous as that person is. We start to admire people differently when God changes our hearts. He gives us a greater admiration towards others. But he also gives us a greater joy. Look back at verse 6. They become imitators of us and the Lord. For you receive the word with, what, much affliction. With the joy of the Holy Spirit. You see, the people that heard the gospel right here, when God saved them, it wasn't like, well, God, you got everything in my life right. And so now that my house is taken care of, and now that everything's right with my work, and I'm emotionally healthy, now I'm going to believe the gospel, and now I'm going to follow you, and that's what it's going to look like. Once you've taken away all the pain and all the suffering in my life, then I'll follow you. That's not what we find in this text. It says they're in much affliction. They have pain and suffering in their life, and yet the joy that God gives them outpaces it. It says they receive the word, even in affliction, with the joy of the Holy Spirit. You see, Circumstantial joy is fleeting. It fades. But the joy we find in the Lord sustains. This is what God is offering us. 
One of the chief outcomes of our conversion is Christ is that we have a joy that is solid. We have strength and adversity. We can face the hardest of times and it doesn't destroy us because it's founded in something much greater than our circumstances. This is what God offers us. We could spend our entire lives, we could spend 10 of our lifetimes searching for a joy like this in our world and we would never find it. We'd never find it. We could search for joy in relationships that is this deep and we'd never find it. We can search for joys in family and we'd never find it. We could find, search for joy in money and we would never find it as deep and as lasting as we find it when Christ saves us, when he changes us. This is what God offers us. And when God changes us, when God saves us, he sends us. He sends us. That's what we find in verse 7. Look back, it says, so you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The grace of God was for them. It just wasn't all about them. It was much bigger than them. And so it says that they became an example. They became a blueprint for the whole region of Greece. This, this Macedonia to Achaia, this is not hyperbole. That's northern Greece and southern Greece. That's what it is. And when Paul leaves here and he goes and preaches in these other cities around, the faith of the Thessalonians has already made it there. He comes in and he's like, let me tell you about the gospel. And they're like, oh, no, 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 we, we've already heard. Like people left Thessalonica and they came here and they told us about it. What happened there changed us. Paul's like, what in the world? And that word for example literally means an imprint. Like you would take a coin, a piece of metal, and you would imprint an image on it. And he said that their faith, their trust in Jesus Christ that changed their life was an example, a blueprint for the entire area of Greece. When God saves us, he sends us. We are not meant to be a puddle. If you're a Christian, you're not meant to be a puddle. You're meant to be a river, a conduit of God's grace to others. This is what God is calling us to do. This is the, the commission. This is the saving word. This is the power of Jesus Christ to you and to me. Several years ago now, I went to Africa and we went to um, Kenya. We landed in Nairobi, and then we traveled seven hours or so outside of the city in order to share the gospel with people who had never heard the name of Jesus, never heard the name of Jesus. And it was interesting because what happened here in Thessalonica, I saw with my own eyes happen in Africa. So we went to the marketplace one day, and we were just talking with people, and we had a chance to share a gospel. These Four guys came up to us and they were trying to sell us cell phones. And the cell phones that they were selling at that time were the old Nokia, basically like 1990 cell phones, like a brick. The one that had the snake game on it where you ate the apples. Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. They had, uh, they had this game, right? And they're trying to, why don't you buy the cell phone? So we listened to them for a second. And then we said, well, we've got something for you to hear too. And we started to tell them the very things that Paul was preaching in Thessalonica, that Christ came and suffered, and it was necessary for him to, that we could have eternal life. But he didn't stay in the grave, he rose from the grave. 
And three of the four guys were like, oh my goodness, we have never heard this before. Like, this is amazing. The fourth one said, I don't care about any of that stuff. I don't want anything to do with that. So he leaves. But as we pray and as those three guys believe in Christ, they said, okay, don't go anywhere. God's already refining them. He's already working on their heart. He said, don't go anywhere. We've got friends that have to hear this. And so they run away and they come back with like 10 people. And the 10 people hear it. Some of them turn away. Some of them respond. People that respond are like, hey, stay right here. <laughs> we got some people that need to hear this message. Like, and so they go and they get some more people. And it went on for a couple hours like this to the point where there's like a couple hundred people that is listening in the marketplace to the good news of Jesus Christ. And they're responding. And this one lady came up in her 70s and she, with tears running down her face because the gospel had come to her, not just in word, but in power and in full conviction. She says, thank you. Thank you. This is the first time in my 70 years of life that I have ever had hope. That I've ever had hope. This is the power of the gospel. Now, some of us hear this and we're like, Ryan, this is America. Like, this stuff doesn't happen in America. Are you praying it would happen? Are you expecting it to happen? Are you sharing the gospel in such a way that you're trusting in the power of the gospel to change lives and not yourself? A great missionary, William Carey, said it like this. It says, he said, expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. Expect great things from God and then attempt great things for God. Well, church, that we would have that great expectation that God would move and save, that we would expect him to move in those ways, that we would act and live in such a way that we know that God moves and he's living and that he's powerful and he has a gospel he wants to go forth to all nations and all peoples. Church, would we be like the church of the Thessalonians, that our lives would be an example to our neighborhoods, to our city, to our nation, for the glory of God. Bow your heads with me. Right now, if you, you know that you have never believed in this message, you've heard of it, you've known the words, but you've never received it in the power that it is, have been fully convicted by it. Maybe, maybe God did that for you today. Then would you trust and believe in Jesus now? Would you pray to him, confessing those truths that we just talked about, that he died in your place and somehow that counted for you, and then he rose from the grave that you would have hope for this life, but also for eternal life? Just pray that now between you and God. If you made that private prayer to God, know that He has saved you. But at the same time, that private act isn't meant to stay private. God wants you to take it public, which is why the Thessalonians went and they shared their faith. That's why people are baptized after they have believed. They're proclaiming to the world, we believe that Christ died and he rose again for our place. So that personal act that you made, don't keep it private. 
share it. And if you're still struggling, you're still filled with questions about what it means to be a follower of Christ, we would love to, to pray with you and to talk with you. We'd love to take you to lunch or coffee and just answer some of your questions to show you the truth of the gospel through God's word. If that's you, don't miss the moment of today. Don't leave here without coming to talk to one of our staff and one of our pastors to allow them just to talk with you and to pray for you. And church family, those of us that know him and love him, may we pray expecting great things from God. And may we this week attempt great things for God because he is trustworthy and he wants to do great things in and through us. So when we take those steps of faith and look for open doors to be a river of the grace of God and not a puddle, God, would you use us? Jesus, we pray now asking, asking your grace and your mercy to us. May we believe the gospel, speak the gospel, proclaim it, but Lord, may we live it out with our lives also. May we live it out by the way we sing our praises to you, by the way that we give generously to you, God, by the way we forgive as you have forgiven us. God, help us. We need your help. God, we thank you for your grace and your comfort and your mercy. It's in your name we ask. Amen.